Our scripture reading today, for the sermon at least, is from Acts chapter 20. Now, you know we've been going through the book of Genesis, and we have recently been studying the life of Joseph. So you may wonder why we flip-flop things. The Older Testament reading was from the passage that would come up next in our sequential study. But the sermon is going to be based on Acts chapter 20. Well, the reason for that is that we are seeing Joseph start to deal with some of the problems that will confront him and that are confronting him. So in a manner of speaking, he's not starting off well. He's, he's getting off to a rocky start with his life. You remember he had those dreams. He told his family about it. He uh, got the coat of many colors and everything just sort of went downhill from there. But the title of this message today is Finishing Well. And I'm turning to some guidance from the Apostle Paul on this particular topic. And I think that you'll see how generally, broadly relevant it is to what we have been studying. So listen as I read Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 27, reading from the New King James Version. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and to Greeks or Gentiles. Now, what is it he testified? Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But notice what he says here in verse 24. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that all you among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, that's what he was preaching, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. This ends the reading that was from the New King James translation. Let me begin by uh, telling you something from the life of the great American poet Robert Frost. For more than 20 years of his life, his calling or his work as a writer and a poet was a total failure. And he often remarked that during that time, he was one of the few people he even knew who was a poet, who wrote poetry for a living. And at his death, the world mourned his passing, and today he towers as one of America's great men of letters, greatest writers. His poems have been published in 22 languages with an American dish, an edition that sold over a million copies. He's a four-time, he was a four-time Pulitzer Prize winner. He had more honorary degrees than probably any other writer. But he was 39 years old before he ever sold one volume of his work. He had been writing for two decades, but he received endless rejection letters. But... His perseverance paid off, and the world has been the richer for it. Now, I think that is a great example of the truth 
that the goal of life is not simply to begin well, or even if you have not begun well, but to finish well. And this is what we're seeing in terms of the man Joseph, whom we have been studying. He is progressing toward that point. Now, we live in an age of shallow commitment and the consumer mentality. And so, the church of Jesus finds many who come within her walls, who, for example, they blaze brightly for a while, only to fizzle out after a short time. And there may be any number of reasons for that kind of dynamic. Too often, though, the reason is an immature faith that wearies of serving the Lord, much like a child soon tires of playing with a certain toy. Now, maybe you've known people like that if you've been in the church or ministry of the work of the church for any length of time. Uh, people who've gotten all excited about serving the Lord in a new church, or they've, they've just become followers of Jesus. And at some point, however, something goes sideways. Something doesn't go their way. Maybe they found that people didn't respond to them, or to their work, or to their ministry, small m, as positively as they thought they should. They got into some conflict, maybe, with a fellow believer. And so after years, they end up leaving either the church or, in some cases, it may be the pastoral ministry or, or something like that. And there's a lot of cynicism and bitterness. So Paul, he does not want that to happen to the elders in the church at Ephesus. He wanted them to finish the race well. And so he shares with them godly wisdom from his own life. And in this wonderfully personal way, he shares with those men and through them with us the drive and the determination to finish well. Now I'm going to read verse 24 again where he says, None of these things move me, but I count my life dear, I don't count my life dear to myself. I'm going to read it in a different translation. But I put no value on my life. If only at the end of it I may see the work complete which was given to me by the Lord Jesus to be a witness of the good news of the grace of God. So now, friends, in terms of what we're doing here, I pray that this much we will take away. We will leave knowing that these verses apply to us and our lives in the Lord today. Paul did not consider his own life of any account as dear to himself in order that he might finish his course, the ministry that he had received from the Lord Jesus. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's fine for the Apostle Paul or for those who have been called into pastoral ministry or maybe to the mission field. But listen to me. Where you live, where you work, or where you go to school, if that's you, these are all places of ministry and mission. And while it is true that there are specialized ministries in those kind of areas, it is equally true that all Christians are to be actively involved in the ministry of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so if you are listening to this message today, whether here in this sanctuary or by means of our sermon audio ministry, and you consider yourself a follower of Jesus the King, then you have a responsibility, an obligation, and a duty. That obligation is to finish your own race well. The Lord calls you to stay the course and finish the course of life that he's given you. And so from these things then that we've read, I want to share with you the following five points in good Calvinistic fashion, right? Here's the first. 
To finish the race well, we must recognize that God has assigned a ministry to us, to you, to me. There is no such thing in Holy Scripture as a Christian without a calling of some sort. All of us are to be involved in the ministry of the church. But now somewhere along the path, the church has fallen into a very mistaken way of thinking about this. At least some churches have. Uh, We seem to think that that there are people who are the really super committed types who, quote, go into the ministry. But everybody else, you know, just sort of fiddles around and serving the Lord in their spare time, maybe as a volunteer. But the Bible teaches that every follower of Jesus has been given some ability or talent from God. And every Christian will give an account to the Lord for his stewardship in using that talent or that ability for God's purposes. 1 Peter 4, 10, in a paraphrased translation, reads, God has given gifts to each of you from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Manage them well so that God's generosity can flow through you. See, friends, it makes no difference if you are a waiter or a waitress, an accountant, a carpenter, a housewife, a mother, a father, retired, whatever. If you're a Christian, you must see yourself as being in the ministry just as I am in the ministry. Now, in my case and any other pastor, we happen to be supported in this work that we do in this ministry. Now, you may not be, and you're probably not. And realize this, to that extent, that you don't get paid for your ministry, you're more like the Apostle Paul than I am. Because, you see, Paul was bivocational. That means that in addition to his preaching ministry... When he had time or needed extra funds, he chose to work in a, quote, secular job to help meet his expenses. And for what we know, he was a tent maker. See, one hurdle we need to get over today, though, is how we even think of doing ministry. What comes to your mind when I say that word, doing ministry, or just ministry generally? So ministry is not just a task or sphere of service. It is a mentality. It is a way of thinking that permeates all of life. When you properly begin to see yourself in the ministry, you will then understand that this means you are available to God. What are you available to Him for? For the advancement of His kingdom. Now that may mean serving someone in a practical way by meeting a need. It may mean sharing the message of Jesus, of repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ with an unbeliever. Or maybe encouraging a believer by listening to that person's problems and sharing God's wisdom with them. See, you can minister through giving of your tithes and offerings, of your time or talents, or through prayer. Whatever form it takes. Ministry means not focusing on yourself, but on others and being available to God to work through your life. You won't fulfill the ministry that God has given you if you aren't even aware that you are in the ministry. Again, you may be thinking, well, you know, I'd like to do that someday, but right now I'm just too busy to serve God. Well, if that is you today, then I ask you to consider the next thing that we can take away from what Paul has written here, what he said. We must accept the fact that we have been drafted into God's army. We are not volunteers. That's the second point. We've got to think of ourselves as part of having been in. Uh, drafted into service. Paul says that he goes 
bound in the Spirit on his way to Jerusalem. Now stop and think about that for a moment. Why didn't he think this? Why, but, but why wasn't Paul thinking this way? Bonds and afflictions, well, that doesn't sound like a very happy future. I think I'll opt for the volunteer course. Paul didn't see himself as a volunteer for Jesus. He saw himself as a recruit under orders from his commander. It was the Holy Spirit compelling Paul to go to Jerusalem, while at the same time warning him of the hardships that he would encounter there. And again, we see a parallel with the life of Joseph in a similar way, a different circumstance. I think that too often, maybe we send out the wrong message in churches that we know we're looking for volunteers to serve Jesus. See, the problem with that view is if you can choose to serve, well, then you can choose not to serve or to quit serving if the service isn't to your liking. I've used this illustration before. The high school where I went in Columbia had a class 4A top-level football team here in this state. And I remember they were very proud of it. And they had a big thing emblazoned across the gym wall. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Well, the message that a lot of people in the church have is just the opposite. When the going gets tough, I'm out of here. That's not what you're recruited by Jesus to say. If you get drafted to serve, you are chosen to serve. Some of us have a living memory of when there was a mandatory military draft during the Vietnam era. I I wasn't uh, alive during World War II. Some of you may know. I think there was probably a mandatory draft. So in my case, like a lot of other guys my age, I went down to the uh, selective service, I think is what they called it, office in Columbia. I got my draft card. I registered for the draft. I thank the Lord that uh, the Vietnam conflict, as they called it, was over, so I didn't have to go over there myself, but I would have no other choice. That, that's what happens when you get drafted. You serve because you're chosen to serve. You may not like the food. You may not like the, the living quarters. You may not like where the, the military or whoever sends you and assigns you to go, but you serve anyway because you're under orders. That's how Christians ought to see themselves. If Christ bought you with his blood, you belong to him as a slave. I think it's interesting that um, the uh, master's seminary, John MacArthur's seminary and college out in California, you know, they've been big, big promoters of the New American Standard Bible, especially the 1995 edition. And it's basically not a bad translation, I guess. But they got permission from the Lockman Foundation, who owned the copyright to the New American Standard translation, to make a few minor changes and publish it as the Legacy Standard Bible. And one of the interesting things that they did, as far as I know, anywhere in the New Testament, and I assume in the Older Testament, where the Hebrew or Greek word could be translated either slave or servant, it is consistently, from beginning to end, translated slave. I think the thought was it gets the idea across better. We are slaves of Christ Jesus, and slaves don't choose to serve. They're under orders. If the service isn't pleasant or fun, well, too bad. You are not free to quit. To finish the course, we need to see ourselves as a recruit, not as a volunteer. Thirdly, we must give our lives away to Jesus Christ, and we should not be alarmed that hardships come as we follow him. 
There's a memorable story about the missionary James Calvert. He was sent, or he decided to go with a few friends as a missionary to the notorious cannibals of the Fiji Islands. And he asked the captain of the ship to take him there. And the captain pled with him, you know, you're going to lose your life and all those with you if you go among these savages. Calvert's, Calvert, C-A-L-V-E-R-T, his memorable reply was, sir, we've all died long before we got here. In other words, they died to their own selfish motives and needs. They had given themselves over to Jesus completely. Now, it seems that today, among some Christians, there's an idea that, you know, you've got two options in the Christian life. The most popular option is to sign up to go to church when it's convenient, put a few dollars in the offering plate now and then, and then live the dream, whatever that is for you. Try to, as best you can in an economy like ours, accumulate money and stuff and live a comfortable life. At least that's what it used to be. Maybe if you have time, you may decide to volunteer at church, but only if it's convenient. Your priority in life under this option is to enjoy yourself, live a good life, and someday retire and spend the last 15 or 20 years driving around these United States in your motor home or playing golf down in Florida. But the second option in terms of the Christian life is not so popular. It's what we'll call the gung-ho types. A gung-ho type is somebody who, who borders on being a fanatic. In the Christian gung-ho option, you're immediately something of a fanatic. You give up any right you have to your own will to serve Jesus. You live a simple lifestyle. You give away lots of money to the Lord's work. Or you may even give up the comforts of living in these United States and go live in more difficult circumstances to reach people for Jesus. As a missionary, if that was your calling... Nobody expects you to live as on a comfort level like the people back home, so to speak. I mean, if you did, if you became a missionary, say, to some far-off tribe somewhere or a group of people, and you're living high off the hog, more so than your families back in this country, people would be questioning your commitment. Now, you're called to deny yourself because you're on the missionary tract of commitment. People back home have not been called to do that. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 8. He's speaking not only to his disciples here but also to an entire crowd of people. And he says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So he wasn't calling people to some gung-ho, fanatic level of discipleship. Now, I've termed it that, but that's in comparison to the other. Now, when he called people to a radical self-denial to the point of death, and that's what taking up the cross means, he was simply calling them to salvation, to a new life. He was calling them to basic Christian discipleship. Every follower of Jesus, not just a few super committed, is called to this total all-out, it permeates all of your life kind of commitment. So we need to be totally surrendered to Jesus and to his law word, even if it means hardship to the point of martyrdom. Even if it means our being viewed as some sort of weirdo by our friends and co-workers and neighbors. And the fact is, really following Jesus will create problems for us on some level. Now, hopefully, you know, uh, you might be able to, you used to be able to say we won't end up being tortured or beaten or martyred, as our early Christian ancestors were. But 
in this day and time, who knows? It's probably five minutes to midnight, whereas uh, 30 years ago it was maybe 11.30 in terms of that possibility. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now to our self-centered, you know, uh, me-focused age, that doesn't very much sound like a good selling point, does it? Why would you even think about following Jesus if it means conflict and trial and maybe even persecution? Well, there's a very simple answer to that question. Because the only alternative to following Jesus is to follow your own whims and desires. And while the latter may bring you more immediate worldly pleasure in the long run, and many who follow that way will be quick to tell you, even in the short run, God's wrath and judgment fall upon those who continue on that path. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What a strange thing to say. Whatever could he mean by something like that? Let me give you another translation. He who has the desire to keep his life will have it taken from him, and he who gives up his life because of me will have it given back to him. See, once you are united to Christ... You don't need to live in fear of the future because your future is in his hands. Thankfully, God doesn't let us know the details about what's going to happen to us in the future. I mentioned that a few weeks ago when we began our study in the life of Joseph. You know, he's had the dreams. You're all going to bow down to me. I'm going to be the head of the family. I've got the the special royal coat to prove it. Little did he know what would soon unfold before him. But the Holy Spirit told Paul, that bonds and afflictions awaited him, but nothing more. That's all he was told. So we should live each day all out for the Lord, knowing that if he brings trials into our lives, he will also give us the grace to endure those trials. But we must live for the kingdom, not for the fleeting pleasures of this life only. And so to finish well in life, we must recognize that God has given us a calling, one in which we can serve him and that we are a recruit And have been drafted, not volunteers, in God's holy army. Then fourthly, we must keep the goal in view. And that goal is faithfulness to the gospel of God's grace. Paul said that he needed to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Not everyone is called to be a pastor or a missionary, as Paul was. But with whatever gifts God has entrusted to us, the bottom line is the same. We must be faithful by our life and our words to the message of the kingdom. That's what Paul is saying in verse 26. Listen again what he says in that verse in a more paraphrased translation. He says, let me say plainly that I have been faithful. No one's damnation can be blamed on me. So if your life and your words bear witness to the gospel of God's grace, you are innocent of the blood of those who have come in contact with you and your witness. If you want to be innocent of the blood of all people, Keep your eye on the goal line. That means for you to stand before the judge of the whole world and hear him say, well done, excellent. And that well done comes when we reach the goal at the end of our earthly pilgrimage and we can look back and say, I did my best to bring all areas of life under the authority of God's law, word, and wisdom. Now, Paul uses the phrase in verse 25, preaching the kingdom. And that's a parallel, as I tried to point out when I read it, that's a parallel to what he says in verse 24, the gospel of the grace of God. The kingdom is the realm where Jesus is Lord and King. 
Our lives and our words must bear witness to the lordship of Jesus if we want to hear that well done when we cross the finish line. So keep your eye on that goal and bear witness of the gospel of God's grace and the lordship and kingship of Christ Jesus. And finally, number five, we must live by and make known the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. He says in verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God to you. Now that phrase implies that Paul was balanced in teaching the full breadth of God's word. No red letter Bibles. No, uh, well, you know, that's the Old Testament. We're New Testament Christians. None of that. The whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation. You know, false doctrine and heresy are often the result of God's truth becoming imbalanced. Now, some people, theologians, have said that that is what Islam, the the Muslim religion, is. Uh, Of course, that's been a religion that's been very much in the news in the past 30 or 40 years. But for people who've examined this, the Islamic religion is a false heretical form of a combination of Judaism and Christianity. So Islam has some truth in it, mixed with a lot of error, but what truth there is in Islam is way out of balance. But you know, we don't need to look any further than the modern evangelical church to see that too. Now, I'm not saying that the modern evangelical church is no different than the Muslims. I'm not saying they're in the same league. But too many churches claim to honor the word of God, but they don't really do it. When it comes to the hard doctrines, like predestination and election, like accountability and discipline in the church, and the abiding validity of God's law word as the standard of justice in society and in personal life, well, they soft-pedal those things or ignore them. Paul explains in Ephesians 3, the purpose of God includes that. Now, let me just give you this as an example of, of not shrinking to declare to them the whole counsel of God. Now, and listen to this. In Ephesians 3, he declares that the purpose of God includes the mystery that the Gentiles are now fellow members of the body of Christ through the message of the kingdom. Now, we read or hear that, and maybe we just give a big yawn. Big deal! What's so special about that? But you see, that was a very hard, controversial teaching in Paul's day because the Jews didn't want to hear it. I mean, this was... This was verbal dynamite for him to make a declaration like that. But he didn't turn away from teaching it. So teaching the whole purpose of God means that we don't dodge the hard truths of God's word. If his word reproves sin, we reprove sin. If it corrects wrong thinking, we correct wrong thinking. And we reprove these things and correct these things in ourselves first and foremost. One of the places that Paul ended up on his missionary journey was the city of Athens, where he memorably, I think this is in Acts 17, where he had a dialogue with some Greek philosophers. Athens was famous for that, among other things. But something else Athens was known for was what we today would call Olympic-type athletic events. And there was one that they held back in those days to honor various Greek gods, One of those events was a torch race. And that is a a race of torch bearers. And it was run at night in honor of the Greek god Prometheus. And the starting point was about a mile and a half outside the city limits of Athens 
in an olive grove where supposedly Plato, the great philosopher, had his academy. That spot being chosen because there was a sanctuary, a temple dedicated to Prometheus there. Well, in this torch race, the winning place of the finish line was inside the city. There was a, a, a post about the, the height of a man in that place. And the runner who reached it first with his torch still burning and propped it on top of the post, that he was the winner. He got the prize. Why am I telling you this? Because, friends, in a like manner, our Christian lives, according to the writer of Hebrews, is to set, run the race that is set before us. Hebrews 12.1. And we shall have run that race well. If when we come at last in the, the presence of God Almighty, Yahweh our Lord, and our lights, our torches are still burning. I leave you with these words from the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 3. Those who are wise will shine as brightly as the expanse of the heavens. And those who have instructed many in uprightness as bright as stars for all eternity. By God's grace, let us run the race that is set before each of us individually. And by his grace, let us finish it well. Let us pray.